Welcome back to our podcast, Youth Justice Transformation in Action. We are the RFK National Resource Center for Juvenile Justice, and we are on a mission to transform the youth justice system by partnering with people like you who are passionate about improving outcomes for youth, families, and communities you serve. We are bringing you experts from the field and on the ground who have championed reform on the local, state, and national level. We are your hosts. I'm Jody Martin. I'm John Toole. And I'm Michelle Darling. In today's episode, Assessments 101, The Fundamentals, John interviews Dr. Gina Vinson, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Law and Psychiatry Program at University of Massachusetts Medical School and President of the National Youth Screening and Assessment Partners. John and Dr. Vinson's conversation will provide an introduction to juvenile risk assessment and risk-need responsivity and its importance to probation staff, defense and prosecuting attorneys, judges, and system stakeholders. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear about another opportunity to gain more detailed information about risk assessments and youth justice. And check out our website, rfknrcjj.org, for more resources on assessments and other topics. John, take it away. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the second in our podcast series. We're privileged to have Dr. Gina Vincent join us today. I have the privilege also of knowing her for nearly two decades as the result of the intersection of our work, where she focuses on assessment and screening instruments and their utility in the juvenile justice system. And our work surrounds the transformation of youth justice, making them excellent partners. Gina speaks about complex issues regarding the screening and assessment instruments with clarity. Her work and her style permits an ease of practical application of these instruments in challenging and difficult circumstances in environments that sometimes have some issue with the use of these instruments and their utility in serving the interests of the juvenile justice system. I'd like to welcome Gina, a friend and a colleague, and ask if she would please introduce herself. Yes, thank you, John. Um, That was a very kind introduction, I appreciate it. So I am, as you know, I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. And I also run the National Youth Screening and Assessment Partners, which is a technical assistance center for screening and assessment in juvenile justice and for implementing risk-aid responsibility. Yeah, and Gina, in your background, you've written a lot uh, around the research and the practical application of risk needs responsivity. Do you mind just telling the audience a little bit about some of those publications that help drive your work? So my background, as I mentioned, is in forensic psychology, but it's research forensic psychology. And I specialize in violence risk assessment, validation of assessment instruments, and young people, because I've always wanted to work in the juvenile justice arena, not the adult justice arena. And so my earlier publications were really around, can we predict violence in young people? Can we predict reoffending in young people? What's the best way to do that? What's the best way to assess them, to try and figure out the best course of action to prevent them from doing this again in the future or to mitigate their risk. So my earliest publications were around that, but it became very clear once risk assessment took off in the juvenile justice arena that we didn't know anything about how to implement these well. And frankly, there was no evidence that once you did put them into place, that they made any difference in the lives of youth or in the system, frankly. There was, that evidence just didn't exist. 
People were not doing implementation-related research for risk assessment in juvenile justice settings when my team first started out. And, you know, I'm happy to say we were some of the first groups to do that. Um, and our question, and thank, thankfully, Lori Garduki and the MacArthur Foundation saw fit to fund us to do this, but our question was, are these risk assessment instruments going to actually make any difference once you put them into place? Are we going to see less youth ending up in detention? Are we going to see better case planning? Are we going to see more diversion? And all of these things that you really should see if R&R is followed. So that's what led me to that kind of work. I've since been funded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the MacArthur Foundation, of course, to do multiple implementation studies. They've all built off one another. MacArthur funded us to put together a implementation of risk assessment and juvenile justice guidebook, which I think got a lot of good play um, and drew a lot of interest because it really was the first guidebook around how do you do this well? And our first study led to that. And then we have published a lot of peer-reviewed research from the grant-funded studies that we've done around how to implement these well. How do you implement and make sure that the system is following risk-need responsivity while still integrating mental health, but not making it all about mental health when that's not the best course of action? What kinds of outcomes should you see when people put these instruments in place? What's the best implementation procedures? And lastly, um, one of the biggest studies that we did recently was, was, is it sustainable? So can agencies sustain this over seven years? I asked that question to raise the attention to the incredible body of credible research that you've provided that helps inform us in the field for the practical application of these instruments to serve the interests of the youth justice community. And I think those will be referenced throughout our conversation today. I think at this point, you know, we're working in the field among a number of jurisdictions. We've conducted our probation and juvenile justice system review in more than 40 jurisdictions nationally. And I think we'd be remiss, Gene, if we didn't start with your ability to explain, so what is a risk assessment? What is an RNR, risk needs responsivity assessment instrument? There's not a simple short answer to that because sometimes it's important to also say what a risk assessment is not um, in order to define what a risk assessment is. But, but very simply, a risk assessment is, is an instrument that is tend intended to tell us what is this individual's level of risk for reoffending and what are some of the risk factors that may have gotten them there that we want to target in our service planning. So that, that would be a risk needs assessment instrument or an R&R assessment instrument, if we want to call it that. Risk assessments are not intended to do everything. There's still a little bit of a misunderstanding out there that these instruments are going to tell you something about youth's mental health or behavioral health. That's not the intention or that these instruments are going to tell you something about, you know, the child's well-being. That is not the intention. These instruments are very specific to what factors are maintaining this youth reoffending, and how concerned do we need to be about this youth? Is this someone who's high risk or low risk for reoffending? And and these instruments are also supposed to give us a sense of what can we do about it. That's very different from a screening instrument. 
A risk screening instrument is intended simply to ask, answer the question, is this person at low, moderate, or high risk for reoffending? That's all the screening instrument is going to do. Tool developers don't generally refer to these screening instruments as screening instruments. They're still often labeled assessments. Based on my definition of assessment versus screening and the definition that um, Tom Grisso came out with years ago for juvenile justice, we would consider those screening instruments because they're not telling us a lot about what's potentially driving this youth behavior or what to do about it. They're simply a short, brief instrument that's intended to give us a, a sense of what this youth level of risk is. You know, because of our professional relationship that we certainly drive as a fundamental in youth justice practice, the use of the risk needs responsivity instruments. I got two quick questions for clarity for our listeners. Uh, we often hear confusion among our stakeholders when we're asked to describe the responsivity factor of the RNR uh, acronym. Can you tell us just a little bit more, be a little clear about what that responsivity factor is? We have brought Keith Cruz in as a director of NYSAP to help us package training around responsivity because he's been doing research around, you know, how to train people on response on the responsivity piece of R&R and how to implement the responsivity piece of R&R. And what we have been trying to do is really break this down. So responsivity can be thought of as barriers. So those are things that might um, make it difficult to deliver specific services to youth. And it can be that the youth is homeless. It can be that the youth has a um, learning disability, and that's going to make it difficult for them to benefit from certain types of services. So we talk about barriers, which are general barriers. Transportation can also be a barrier. So those can be characteristics of the youth. They can be characteristics of their environment, you know, transportation, resources that they have available to them. And they can also potentially even be characteristics of the services. And then we also talk about general or targeted responsivity factors. And that could be something that is maintaining the used dynamic risk factors. So a, a targeted responsivity factor is not a factor that has a direct line to why this use is offending, but it might be underlying a lot of the risk factors that, that are elevated that are leading to the use reoffending. I want to amplify so, that. Your, your position is yeah. that they need to be addressed. I think as a former probation officer, when you speak those terms, practically for me, it's a no-brainer. Of course, they need to be addressed. Um, yeah. If we're going to get underlying factors that affect the amenability to a particular treatment or the amelioration amelioration of the risk to reduce the reoffending. Those things are important and that's the second R in the R and R that is still part of a, the critical aspect of the risk needs responsivity approach. And, and again, we're talking about multiplicity of, of instruments. Uh, we can get into the acronym SOUP uh, with the YASI, with the YLS, with the SAVERY, with whatever, with the OYAS, nonetheless, the, these have been scientifically validated for what, Gina? What, what do they show us? The main um, scientific validation that has been the focus of validation studies is simply, are these instruments, are scores on these instruments or risk levels on these instruments related to who actually reoffends? 
And are they significantly related to who actually reoffends? A tool is not, and I shouldn't call them a tool. I really try to call them instruments because a tool would be like a screening tool. These are assessment instruments. So an assessment instrument for risk that doesn't relate to later offending is no good. So there should be scientific evidence that these instruments actually, what we call predict reoffending. Um, so the higher the score or the higher the risk level, the more likely those kids should have higher recidivism rates. So when we talk about the very basics of tool validation, that's what we're talking about. There are other things to look at psychometrically beyond that, and that is reliability. Can this instrument be done reliably, meaning, John, if you and I were both assessing the same use in the field at around the same time using the same instrument, are we going to come to the same conclusion? Are we going to come to the same risk level? And if we're not, there's no point in using that instrument because you might as well just be using your gut. Fewer, far fewer of these instruments have actually been tested in the field with probation officers to see if they're reliable in that way. Um, but that is another important part of making sure that your instrument is good. I think I attribute the notion of structured professional judgment for the way in which we apply the use of these instruments in the field. Because while you've referenced the score and that's important, we're not simply offering the court for consideration a score and saying, therefore, these instruments have value. We are, by your own words, I believe, trying to apply them in a structured professional judgment. Can you expand upon that just a little bit, Gina? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we highly recommend that you not share scores with anyone outside of who's been trained to use and administer instruments because scores in and of themselves are meaningless. What's meaningful from a decision-making lens is risk level. So, you know, low, moderate, or high. And what's also meaningful and where we really focus our energy is around training individuals. How do you use that risk level to make decisions? And that, and how do you use the needs that are coming up in the instrument to make decisions? That's really important. And that's where you're combining an instrument, which is very structured, with a professional's judgment is in that decision-making process, right? So, I would never, and I, and I can say that this is true, I'd say of most of my colleagues, well, any of my colleagues, we would never say when we know about how psychometrics of instruments work, we would never say that a score or a risk level should dictate a decision. It should not. Policies that are set up in a way that's saying if you score this way, they're going to detention, or if you score that way, they're going to diversion. Any policies that have this strong line dictating what a score should do is not a good policy. It's simply not a good policy because there always has to be some flexibility for that gray area. As you know, John, because you were a probation officer, there always has to be a little bit of flexibility to be able to account for those nuances that may come up in a particular kid's life be able to account for the protective factors that the youth may have. We want those decision makers to be well-trained in risk and dynamic risk factors, otherwise known as needs. We want them to be well-trained in that. Right. I, there's another part of your question. I'm just going to say really quickly, John, without going into great detail. 
Structured professional judgment is something that's been studied a lot in forensic psychology. A lot of our instruments use that approach. The savory is one of those. It's not score-based. It's It incorporates that structure from an instrument and all those risk factors with the professional's judgment to determine what's the risk level and what's the person likely to do and where, where do we need to mitigate their risk. So I just want to make that point that it means two different things. What you've done is highlight so many yeah. things that I think we want to continue to address in this conversation, build on your expertise. But before I walk away from an earlier remark that you made, you know, the, you said there's actually very little research in the field um, in probation, not just about the validity, beyond the validity, beyond their impact. Um, but there is some, correct? And some of that has been promulgated by you. Uh, I just want to make sure that as we continue this conversation about the challenges to effective implementation and use of these instruments, that we're still building off a base that there is evidence that when they are effectively implemented through all the challenges that we see, that it can enhance the performance of our juvenile justice system on behalf of those youth and community safety. Um, do you mind commenting on that comment? Yeah, John, thank you. I just want to go back to an earlier statement I made and respond to the very first piece that you said there, which is about the research that's been done in the field on these instruments. I, I think it's important to make the point that most of the research on the validity, meaning does it predict recidivism, that has been done in the field where probation officers were completing these risk assessments um, on live youth and so on and so forth. And they, the developers check to see if the instruments are predicting recidivism. That's what we call validation research. And most of that has actually been done in the field in juvenile justice. The research that hasn't been done in the field as much is around reliability. So I mentioned before that that is when two people, so let's say two probation officers are using the same instrument to assess the same youth and they should be coming to the same conclusion. Um, there's been less reliability research in the field, but there has certainly been some. Some instruments have actually published studies showing that probation officers can complete them reliably. Uh, and there's really good research um, showing that not every instrument has this research and some instruments have this research actually showing the reliability is not great. However, I should make two quick points about this because this is important. First of all, any instrument developer can say that if their tool is showing that it's valid, so meaning there's a statistical association between risk level and who reoffends, that it's also reliable because psychometrically speaking, we cannot have validity without having reliability. So an instrument developer will say, hey, I showed it's valid, so we can assume it's reliable. I think the main take home is when any agency is implementing one of these assessment instruments, they really need to check periodically if their probation officers are doing it to fidelity and are maintaining their reliability. It's just an ongoing piece of, um, of quality assurance that any agency should want to check. So I just wanted to make that point. But back to your question about the evidence that these can be implemented effectively and that when they are implemented effectively, it enhances the performance of the juvenile justice system and continues to protect community safety and helps the youth. That is absolutely right. So uh, one of my pet peeves is actually that there's quite a bit of published studies out there saying that um, probation officers can't do this, <laughs> that they just can't do this well, that they don't follow risk need responsivity, 
that they don't use these instruments in their decisions, um, that the instruments are not completed well, and and on and on, and that it's not making a change. Well, the reason that's my pet peeve is that it's simply not fair to be evaluating how well one of these instruments is working and whether an agency is following risk-need responsivity without first looking at how that agency implemented it in the first place. If the agency did not follow like a comprehensive strategy for implementation, meaning that their policies and procedures were all outlined in a way that enables their probation officers to follow risk-need responsivity, they, ha they also have you know, worked with all their stakeholders, mainly their courts, to allow their probation officers to make recommendations based on their risk assessment to the court. And there's several other phases that are really important around implementation that if those things did not happen, then we shouldn't expect probation officers are going to be able to use risk assessment in their decisions or follow risk-need responsivity. We, we can't expect it because they weren't set up in a way that enables them to do it. Um, so it's just, what I can say is that when we've conducted our research with agencies who have followed these comprehensive procedures, we have seen amazing outcomes that are the whole reason that I do this, right? So if you don't look at the implementation and look at where that went awry and think about your research as, okay, how do we inform this agency how to improve their implementation and then get better outcomes? If you're not thinking about your research in that way, um, that's a concern to me <laughs> because there's too many researchers that come out and just say, this doesn't work. And that's, that's simply not true. It's and, simply not true. And Gina, not only do the research say that, but the leaders who are responsible for implementing the R&R approach uh, throughout the system and overseeing its effective implementation are too often pulling the plug too early. And, uh, and they're supported by uh, perhaps a staff that looks at how they used it and say, it didn't make a difference. It doesn't match my gut. I don't want to change. Uh, there's yeah. support in the research that the effect of implementation, and I'm going to get you to comment on these as we continue this conversation, but greater fairness, greater matching of resources uh, to that individual. When we really implement this effectively, it makes a considerable difference in the outcomes of the youth and the overall effectiveness of that juvenile justice system yeah. in reducing recidivism, protecting community safety, and holding those youth accountable in a positive way. Correct? That's right. So yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll walk down that path because I want to identify those. You're the foremost expert on being able to identify what those drivers are that can get us to that place. I'll share my own frustration with you, Gina, that indeed, as we work in all of these jurisdictions, the things that you were just commenting on, the things I just reacted to, are far too often what we find in the efforts to implement these instruments. And so the jurisdiction aborts the implementation process. And then some of those major benefits that can be derived from this are not realized in that juvenile justice system. So um, I think we'll talk more about that, but I do wanna have your expertise speak to the question of, so um, are these assessments used pre or post adjudicatory? That's one of my favorite questions, John. Thank you for asking us. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, this is a this is not rocket science, but this is a finding we have documented repeatedly in in every implementation study that we have done. 
and this is why I stress it so much with any agency I work with now, that if you're not doing that risk needs assessment instrument prior to disposition and getting that information to the judge, it is not going to make any difference at all in your work unless two things are happening. It is possible, one, you've got the buy-in from the court and all the judges in your court that they're going to leave the service planning and the case planning entirely up to the probation officer after the assessment has been completed. And the court order simply says something to the effect of the youth is required to comply with their service plan and leaves it at that. Okay. In that case, an assessment can be done post disposition and still have an impact because it's driving the service plan and the court has enabled it to drive the service plan, right? The other, the other way in which you may find an effect um, if it's done post disposition is simply on used supervision level. So whether they end up on intensive or whether they end up, you know, only being seen once every three months, because usually most probation officers are allowed to make that decision without any court sign off, right? So they'll use a risk needs assessment instrument to make that decision and you may see an impact there. But I am, personally, if I was a probation officer, I would not want to be putting all this effort into doing a risk needs assessment if that's all I was using it for. In fact, and I would be frustrated, to be frank. So we found over and over again that if if the instrument is not done, either pre-adjudication or post-adjudication predisposition and used to make recommendations to the judge in a certain kind of way with a certain kind of format, you're not going to see any shift in the severity of disposition, the severity of dispositions that are, you know, on average that are being utilized by that court or given by that court. You're not going to see a shift in resource allocation and services. You're not going to see a shift in length of stay. We've actually even seen shifts in length of stay once R&R is adopted with a good instrument. And you're basically just not going to, and you don't, you're certainly not going to see a shift in recidivism. <laughs> so, so I, this is one of the biggest findings that we have. And, and obviously, as you know, if an instrument's going to be implemented pre-adjudication, that needs in my opinion, I've worked with a lot of defense attorneys and public defenders. It, it needs to be done very thoughtfully and carefully with a lot of protections against self-incrimination. Some states have done a really good job of that. But we've found the best benefit is when it's implemented pre-adjudication. You know, I just want to amplify that because the fact is what you commented on on the challenges pre-adjudication are often too difficult in certain jurisdictions to even contemplate how they'll get to that place. Where they provide those protections, but you're you're stating here today there's benefit to that. There's significant benefit when that can be worked out, as well as post adjudicatory to inform the disposition among the litigants, the attorneys, and the judges who are often in the, in absence of that, acting on insufficient relevant information about risk, about needs, about responsivity that will truly achieve the outcomes of the juvenile justice system. I think that's what you're saying. I see you're shaking your head. The audience can't, but I think you're affirming that that's, that's the case. Um, so and I appreciate you highlighting that. Let me just ask you to comment also on fairness. Um, if we're relying on this instrument and there's inter-rater reliability for the way in which that assessment instrument is used, doesn't that provide a little bit more fairness uh, among for the youth which is really why we're operating here, the youth and the community safety. Can you comment on that real quick? 
Gina? That is such a tricky question. And we have lots, I mean, those many people smarter than me trying to work that out right now because they're just trying to define fairness. Like we don't all have the same opinion about what fairness really is. And so I'm just going to give you my take, but I'll say that, you know, people at Council of State Governments and Sarah Demeray at PRA have done a tremendous job of documenting what's considered fair and why why this is fairer than a, than a gut approach, right? So, and here's what I'll say is that, you know, the system forever, and there, it's going to be hard to change some people's opinions about this, but the system forever has felt that the most fair way to make decisions is based on one's offense. That is really the only fair way to make decisions. It's hard objective data, right? Um, it's treating everybody the same based on the way they're, you know, with the severity of their offense and yada, yada. Well, it's not that fair, though, is it? Because we have the highest racial disparity probably of any country, of one of any countries in our system. And, and the way people are charged is not the same, right? And we know this. The way people are charged is not the same. So an of, <laughs> the severity of an offense, severity of offense is not necessarily objective data. I mean, it is and it isn't. So risk needs assessment been validated. If you get a good instrument, it's been validated across gender and, and any of the ones we recommend certainly have. That's, they've all been um, validated across different racial or ethnic groups. I think that's a much fairer way of making decisions, certainly than based on your gut, most certainly than based on your gut, or even based entirely on the offense. I really should be a combination of the two. There has been several studies now, I'm just going to say very quickly, I unfortunately have not done any of these. I wish I had, but there have been at least three studies now showing that when you put an instrument in place and you follow it, one study showed far more youth, um, black youth, were getting diverted into, were getting put into diversion as opposed to formally processed because the YLS was put into place. Far greater percentages of black youth were getting diverted than white youth. And that was making more um, balance and, and um, equivalence among those who are getting formally processed. There have been two studies showing that when the courts followed their structured instrument, or if they would have followed their structured instrument, there would have been no racial disparity in who went to jail or no racial disparity in sentencing. But they didn't follow their instrument. And so there was. So, you know, if we're going to consider fairness based on racial disparity, I think getting a psychometrically valid instrument that's also reliable is one of the most fair things you can do. I really appreciate you addressing that particular aspect of the question, and certainly the question more broadly, even if we just simply say, uh, when applied consistently, we at least have established a standard of the criteria for us to assess risk, to determine needs, and to identify what may be able uh, to support uh, the reduction of risk uh, and the amelioration of reoffending behavior. And that's that consistency aspect is certainly a plus of the risk needs responsivity approach. Um, Gina, I'm gonna take just a moment. I, I think with all that you've laid out, I do wanna reaffirm in our own practice, as you know, we're uh, working in six jurisdictions under an OJJDP grant uh, under what we call the Dennis Mondoro project. And just building upon your information, let me take a moment to share with the audience that in Fairfax County, Virginia, we applaud their adoption 
of a bifurcated adjudication and disposition court processing approach. It's being applied prior to disposition, but after adjudication. So, and their collaborative effort among all key stakeholders, the litigants I've spoken about, the judges, the attorneys, the probation unit, the assessors, uh, include the creation of a specialized assessment unit and trained expertise in the application of the Youth Assessment Screening Instrument, also known as the YASI, that subsequently informed dispositional hearings in more than 90% of their formal cases. And through this commitment over the past three years in Fairfax County, they've reduced the number of low-risk youth placed on probation. They've reduced the number of technical violations for youth placed on probation. They've increased the instances, and I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit, of matched services for the youth treatment needs and therefore realized an overall reduction in recidivism rates among their probation population from top to bottom, low to high risk reduction in recidivism rates. And quickly in Lancaster County, Nebraska, I'd be remiss if I didn't share their experience, uh, their commitment was to routine reassessment at regular intervals that permitted their youth justice stakeholders to create an early case closure policy and procedure that was built upon the demonstrated reduction in risk as evidenced by the youth level of screening instrument, also known as the YLS. And through this commitment over the last two years, Lancaster County has increased their successful early closure rate from 14% to 32%, while seeing a nearly 25% decline in their overall recidivism rate for their probation youth. In both instances, there's more to know about the factors that have impacted their success, but fundamentally they made commitment to this approach in both the dispositional, and then if they were placed on probation, their assessment of whether or not there was substantial progress to reducing that risk and meeting the matched service needs for those youth. Your comment? Those outcomes are tremendous, and we've seen similar outcomes from, a, from probation offices or statewide agencies that put their instrument in place predisposition and follow good policies. So, I think one of the big points there is that they did it there, they did it post adjudication predisposition, and they were probably able to, they were able to bifurcate those hearings, and they were probably able to get a lot of support to do that and have an assessment unit or a predisposition unit, which is just as effective if you are able to get that support as doing something pre adjudication. The reason I mentioned pre adjudication being the most effective way in the studies we've seen is twofold. One, that enables the risk assessment instrument to be, be used for diversion decisions. So you see more youth handled completely informally. So that's one. But the other is that we've found it much harder for probation offices and courts to follow a post-adjudication predisposition policy. They end up only doing the assessment in 25% of cases predisposition when that's their policy except in, in situations like what you just mentioned in Fairfax, where they, they, I believe they have a predispositional unit, don't they? Or an assessment unit, I'm not sure exactly what they call it. Yes. Which is a tremendous way to go about this. I know that one of the things we're going to probably be talking about is what are the major drivers of good implementation. And we know, and this is not just us, this is true in any human service work that's been documented by the implementation science gurus like Dean Fiction um, and others, that it takes about three years or more to generally start seeing outcomes. But you also need very good supervision. You need very good supervision and you need very good stakeholder buy-in. We did 
one of our studies was in Arkansas, was in four jurisdictions in Arkansas. They were all somewhat independent counties. Fokker County did an amazing job in their implementation within a year and a half because of the supervisory um, oversight that Faye Shepard, their um, probation manager, did. Um, I know you know her, John. She checked yes. every case plan. She had conversations with every PO on every case plan. She checked every Savory. Judge Braswell had complete buy-in that he wanted to see a Savory before he made any decision. They saw the best match that I've ever seen. They came up, they resulted in the best match I've ever seen with respect to youth getting services that match their criminogenic needs. Or if we just want to call them needs, that's fine. It's the best match I've ever seen. And they can accomplish that within a year and a half. They had significantly more kids getting um, handled informally, significantly more. And this is a well-controlled quasi-experimental study. And, and they had reductions in placement. So we saw, and they had significant reductions in recidivism and their recidivism rate wasn't even high to begin with. Like it was the kind of recidivism rate where it's hard to even budge. So it's amazing. And it's because of those two things, the judge buy-in and the supervisory oversight. And they followed all the implementation procedures we talked about. Pennsylvania, how can we, how can we even talk about R&R without talking about Pennsylvania? We did a, a sustainability study where we lo- we're really looking at whether um, implementation of these instruments, what were the outcomes in the first year and a half, and then what were the outcomes seven years later? And our, one of our big sites for that was Pennsylvania. And we, again, only had three counties in that study. But these were the individuals that we originally implemented everything using our guidebook with. Not only they they did they more than sustained their outcomes, they improved their outcomes, and they had great outcomes to begin with. And when I say they improved their outcomes, we saw continually um, more youth being diverted and handled informally. They put a lot of effort in, and money into training all of their supervisors, all their probation supervisors in needs-based case management. They were sending less kids away to services and doing more of it in-house, so they saved significantly more money while still getting good outcomes for kids or better outcomes for kids. And, and I think a big part of that is the investment in other initiatives that help supplement R&R. And they have this great leadership through Juvenile Court Judges Commission, who's helping drive a lot of that. And they have tremendous stakeholder buy-in because they continually engage in stakeholder buy-in activities with their judges, with their courts, with their attorneys, and so on, because that's an ongoing process. It's not a one and done. That was great information from John and Dr. Vincent. Join us next month for part two of this podcast, where John and Dr. Vincent have an in-depth conversation about the drivers of successful implementation and the fairness of risk assessment instruments. We'll also get a sneak peek at Dr. Vincent's upcoming work that continues to advance the youth justice system. To learn more about the RFK National Resource Center for Juvenile Justice, visit our website at rfknrcjj.org and follow us on Twitter at RFK Youth Justice.